Before we dive into my discussion with Jessica, let's get to some housekeeping. Firstly, I want to give a huge thank you, as always, to our patrons over at patreon.com slash outerrimreads who make this show possible. Your support of the podcast keeps me going week to week, and I'm grateful that you've made it a priority to support Outer Rim Reads, but also independent creators in general. I especially want to give a massive shout-out to our patron at the Lothal tier, Simon, for his truly incredible above and beyond support of the podcast. If anyone wants to join our patron team and get access to episode bloopers, a bonus monthly show, exclusive stickers, and more, you can head over to patreon.com slash outerrimreads, where you can join the family for as little as $3 a month. Now let's get to our Search Your Reading segment. Last episode's discussion question was, Qui-Gon told Rail that confronting the dark side is not a choice they make once to walk away from, but rather the journey of a lifetime. Does that reflect the views of the Jedi Order as a whole? Or, if not, how might the Order look different if they adopted that philosophy? And we have an answer from our patron Heather on Discord. She wrote, It should reflect the views of the Order, but it seems like they would rather ignore or pretend that curiosity about the dark side is simply forbidden, taboo, instead of teaching how to deal with it in a real way. It's like a school teaching abstinence-only sex ed. That's probably going to backfire on you. In an ideal world, Jedi would not be tempted by the dark side. But the real world is messy and unpredictable. No wonder Jedi who experience a pull or curiosity about the dark side feel weird or isolated. No one has taught them how to grapple with it in a productive way. Thanks so much for that answer, Heather, and listeners, stay tuned for our next question at the end of this episode. Now, let's get into episode 34 of Outer Rim Reads. Hello there, listeners, and welcome to episode 34 of Outer Rim Reads, a podcast that journeys chapter by chapter through Star Wars novels across the canon. My name is Andrew Geha, and I'm your host along this journey. In this episode, we'll be discussing chapters 32 through 34 of Master and Apprentice, and I'm joined today by one of the hosts of Stories by Darksaber Light, Jessica Johnson. Jess, how are you doing today? Thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> We've been talking for the past 50 minutes, but only just started recording. But So I, I know you're doing well. Uh, <laughs> had some issues with the connection, but we're live. We're going strong. I am just, I'm glad to have you on the show. I was, I was mentioning earlier that it has been literally months since I'd reached out to see if you're interested in to coming on the show. So I am, uh, I'm glad that you're still willing to talk about some Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. It's, I've been looking forward to it since you reached out. And I, yeah, I think that that was back when I first announced that I was starting a podcast. So that really yeah. has been since October of last year. And so we're finally getting there, but we're nearing the end of this book. So that makes exactly. sense as well. <laughs> I remember I was thinking about it uh, earlier when I'd reached out. I think you were were you like a, a Satine Stan account or uh, I mean you you still could be but it's I know that it was before you had started the show so it was a very it was a different like Twitter branding for uh, your profile so it was it was a different time wasn't it <laughs> it was a different time and that was where I had gotten my start was um, yeah. 
was I had come on Twitter as a, a Satine Stan account and got some some uh, followers, and then had said, you know. I'd love to be on other people's podcasts, and then once I started doing that, it was like, well, I have opinions, should I start a podcast? And <laughs> and uh, people people didn't tell me not to. So <laughs> <laughs> that was that was permission enough. <laughs> that was permission enough, and so so then um, then the branding did change a bit, but um, that was where I started, and I, I did realize after a while that uh, that marketing that brand probably was going to have to go away eventually. I mean, but it never, you know, some some brandings are never truly gone. You know, you're you're still a Satine Stan. Um, I definitely am, and I still I still call myself Duchess by Dar- Duchess of Darksaber Light. Exactly, exactly. Gotta maintain that just a little bit. Exactly. We all have to know, you know, who who you still are. Uh, you know, your roots are still solid. <laughs> That's but speaking right. of 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 starts, um, how about you? let the listeners in on, you know, the, the start of your Star Wars story, you know, uh, how you got introduced to the Star Wars universe, and then specifically with Master and Apprentice. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it is just about coming up on a year that I would say that I became a Star Wars fanatic. I, I mm. got introduced to the Clone Wars in May of last year. Um, and that's when everything changed. But I've been a Star Wars fan for a long time. Not lifelong. I actually remember um, when the prequels came out and I was in elementary and middle school, I, I didn't see it because I thought it was too nerdy. I <laughs> I didn't go see them. And then I got into science fiction um, and science fiction shows in high school, and it was Stargate and Star Trek and Star Wars and all of these... All the stars. <laughs> all the stars. The Star Trifecta. <laughs> and that's when I watched the original trilogy, watched the prequel trilogy for Star Wars, enjoyed it, really loved the original trilogy, loved sure. Leia, all of that, and um, considered myself a big fan, did not find myself a fan of the prequels <laughs> as we were talking about that a little bit earlier yep. that uh to me there was very little redeeming quality to the prequels i i did not understand <laughs> anakin skywalker or his fall or why padme fell for him all of these things but what i did love was the phantom menace and i yep. loved qui-gon jinn and i loved obi-wan and that was really like that was my rock for the prequel trilogy um, but then, you know, going forward, like, you know, I watched all of the sequels, I watched The Mandalorian season one, and enjoyed everything, watched sure. it with relish, but I was not a fan, and it wasn't, or I wasn't a fanatic, and it wasn't until I found Clone Wars that something just clicked, yeah. and for me, it probably was, it was Obi-Wan and Satine's love story, and <laughs> what was so fun was that I always wanted more Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan, and then it just so happened that this character that I fell in love with in the Clone Wars, she also has a history with them. And so it all just kind of <laughs> came together to to coalesce, and, and that was, like, that's my love of this franchise, these, these characters right there. And so then I found that there was a novel. There was a novel <laughs> about Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan and their, their relationship um, before all of this happened, and... Um, it was the first canon Star Wars novel that I read and still really? one of my very favorites. And 
now it's going to be a lot of fun to just kind of gush about it for an hour. Yeah. <laughs> it is a, a great story to gush about. Um, Claudia Gray just has that effect with her writing. Uh, you had mentioned off air how one of the most uh, kind of enthralling things about a Star Wars book is uh, are, are when there's two characters that build off of and, and feed off of each other um, in their development, in their characterizations and personalities and stories. And I think what we've gotten with this book is a prime example of how good those kind of stories are compared to ones that might not have that kind of structure and just how satisfying and also frustrating of a read <laughs> that they can be. Uh, it's it's like it's a blessing and a curse to know where each character is coming from in their struggles and in their in their points of view, and just seeing how Claudia is able to write how they clash and how they reconcile. And it's it's a um, it's a magic that I'm still discovering myself. But it's uh, <laughs> it's been a great journey in this book so far. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, I'm excited to talk about these chapters, though. Uh, there is a lot of great Qui-Gon uh, and Obi-Wan, too, uh, parts of these chapters. So how about I give my summary for chapter 32, and then we'll dive right in to really... Uh, <laughs> these are some very entertaining chapters. <laughs> Let's do it. Qui-Gon meets with Zerka Sector Supervisor Cole in order to try and negotiate Rahara's release. When Cole says she would, if Qui-Gon agreed to reverse his position and legitimize the ceremony, the Jedi Master refuses. After neither he nor Cole give ground, Qui-Gon leaves and decides to pursue another route instead. In a Zerka facility, Rahara is being processed yet again into the Zerka slave system. Shivering and alone, she realizes just how much she misses Pax and seeks to understand why Zerka continues to use sentient slaves. In the palace, Qui-Gon notices that preparations for the coronation ceremony are back underway. Rushing to his quarters to see if the council had sent a message detailing a plan forward, he's confronted by Obi-Wan, who confesses to having contacted the council behind his back. The order chose to name Obi-Wan as the Republic's representative, much to Qui-Gon's shock. Really, the tensions between Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon hit uh, another low uh, at the end of this chapter. There is a lot that goes on. We get some connection to Qui-Gon as we see him, the Phantom Menace, in this first part. It's it's an interesting chapter. What were your first um, What were your first impressions with chapter thirty-two? Oh gosh, yeah, lots going on here. Um, I really do, you know, the the reason why this chapter really stands out to me is that tension between Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan really coming to a head here because it's not just something that they're dealing with internally anymore. This is having um, huge impacts on this story. The idea that Obi-Wan has gone to the council on his own um, and the fact that Qui-Gon really believes that the visions that he's seeing are going to end in tragedy. Um, this is where it's like, oh, okay, we, we see that these tensions have been building, but it's come to a head. Um, but yeah. even beyond that, so many different characters and their, their connections to one another. Um, I love that we're, we're seeing a lot of character motivations in yeah. this particular section. Yeah, I, I love that point about really seeing the visible consequences of these tensions that have really been been building you know ahead of steam throughout the book and this is really the part where we see 
the, the tangible consequences. Um, you know, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan have had their arguments throughout the book, but I feel like the consequences for them, um, this might be a new a new high in, in a way. Um, but before we get to their confrontation at the end of the chapter, we do start out in uh, Supervisor Cole's office. And you know, it's a pretty straightforward scene. Uh, she tries to, to bribe Qui-Gon in order to change his mind about joining the ceremony again. And, and my first thought there was, you know, she definitely doesn't know who she's dealing with if she thinks she can bribe Qui-Gon Jinn. Um, but I, I was really... You know, she's never been a very likable character in this book, uh, you know, working for uh, an organization that enslaves people. Uh, not a great look. But when Qui-Gon is talking to her about Rahara, you know, he doesn't mention her by name. He's protecting her identity. He calls her a person Zerka formerly held a sentient property, and she cuts him off there and says, no, 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 not formerly. She says they're still owned by Zerka. Our corporate charters specify this in great detail. And this is just another reminder of how it's all just treated as a business by Zerka. That human lives, they mean nothing to them. And it's just, a, you know, Rahara Wick to them is just another code in their business charters. It's just, I just have it in my notes. It's just, it's disgusting. It's, it's, it's horrible. It really is. And you can just feel how horrible he feels about it, even as he makes the concession, as, as he parrots back to her this idea that, Rahara is still owned by Zerka. I just, yeah, it's. I, I really like this section where you see the places that Qui-Gon is willing to go to fight for Rahara. Yeah. And of, of course, it's, you know, got that imagery of him fighting for Shmi and Anakin in yep. The Phantom Menace as well. But um, there's so much at play here in terms of the symbiotic nature between mm. Zerka and the authority that's been given to Qui-Gon as the Republic's representative, and, and yep. he even talks about, in certain situations, you know, he might be able to try to do something, but oh, that, that would be overstepping his bounds. Yeah. But it really is, it's just horrible what has been allowed to flourish in this system, and it's hard to see how Qui-Gon has gotten himself wrapped up in it. When all he wants to do is be able to free Rahara, and he's yeah. he's finding himself unable to do that. Yeah, and you know, he he does. You had mentioned how it connects to what he tries to do for Shmi and Anakin and Phantom Menace. You know, he he says that he wants to negotiate for her purchase in order to in order to secure her freedom, and you know that's as much of a precedent and foreshadowing to what we see in the Phantom Menace. You know, the the lengths that he's willing to go for one person. And he hasn't known Rahara for long at all. It's been, you know, the course of this book has maybe been a week, just a matter of days. And for someone that he barely knows, just knowing the strife that she's now in, back in slavery, back under Zerka control, you know, he's willing to kind of try to offer political, um, political influence to them, you know, letting them in on like the new administration like i can give you some information on the new chancellor coming in you know whoever that is and he's he's really trying to weigh different offers to them all for freeing one person and and if that's not qui-gon jinn enough then i don't know what is <laughs> oh absolutely he he's got i mean we, we just we see the lengths that he's willing to go to for people yeah. and it's it's always so funny because obi-wan in phantom menace you know he identifies them as qui-gon's pathetic life forms yep 
which I don't think that, you know, it, it, it's, it's meant to be sarcastic and whatnot, but it really is something that characterizes Qui-Gon. He yeah. takes a look at that one pathetic life form and he fights for them. Yeah. And that's what I just love about him so much. It's hard not to love that, really. Um, and we see his compassion on full display in this book, in these chapters, you know, because it you know, his his plan thickens, the plot thickens after Cole kind of shuts the door in his face, you know, because she does end the conversation with a broad smile saying there's nothing he can do to change her mind. Uh, and it's just, I hate her so much. <laughs> but, you know, with unfortunate but effective sequencing in the chapter. The next scene takes us to Rahara in this Zerka facility. And, you know, she's she's defiant in the face of this Zerka control, where it's it's kind of reading off her information as he's as this droid is processing her again and saying she was born to Zerka. Uh, and she says, no, I, I had parents. Uh, and, you know, maybe you can tell me something about that. But then we get this really tragic thought here where she's saying, when she's thinking to herself, quote, Sometimes she believed she remembered them. Most of the time, she knew better. And it just shows really the tragic nature of her childhood, of her upbringing, that all she can remember from her childhood, not even her parents. She knows she had parents, obviously. She, she got there somehow. But all that she can clearly remember from her childhood is being a slave to Zerka, which it's to not even remember your family uh, and to not to know what they were like. Uh, and the, really the, all, the, all the life from her childhood that she can remember as being a slave, it, it's, it's so tragic. It really is. It really is. I, I, I love this section because I feel like you've got that tension between the human and the technological. Yep. And not even technological, but almost, almost like clinical. Almost like she's, yep. you know, she, she remembers she had human parents, but the childhood that she knew um, in slavery, you know, was was so devoid of those connections yeah. that you know she that she's been hurt by that. But yeah. what's funny is that she attempts to humanize this droid yeah. using what she has been able to learn from dealing with packs, which exactly. I just, which I just love, and I thought that that you know what what a way to bring it back around to yeah. make this so character driven between them. When but it also reflects her childhood, the fact that. You know, she she knows she has these human connections, but all of that has been stripped away from her to make her this sentient property. Yeah. And she's fighting against that as while recognizing as best she can. She knows that it's not going to make a difference, but she attempts to reason with this protocol droid. And it actually feels like she gets somewhere just a little bit. Yeah. Until, you know, it kind of like, just how Qui-Gon got the door shut on him, shut on him to end the last scene. The door gets shut on her in, in this scene as well. But you're right. She just she does try to make a connection or a breakthrough with this droid, you know, saying, hey, I have known someone who was literally raised by protocol droids, you know, and trying to get through to him in conversation by knowing how she's dealt with with Pax, literally being raised by droids. And she mentions to, to this droid, this RQ droid unit that, you know, hey, my friend who was raised by droids says that, you know, that if protocol droids made the rules, the galaxy would make so much more sense. And off of that note, she asks this droid, you know, if protocol droids are purposed with helping the galaxy make more sense, then why does Zerka use sentient slaves when they know droids can do the work better, faster, for a cheaper price as well? And the scene ends with this quote from the RQ droid. It, 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 it cocks his head and say, Zerka Corporation 
enslave sentient beings because it can. And if that doesn't make your blood boil, you know, just anyone's blood boil reading that, I, I don't know what to say. You know, the quote, because we can argument is probably one of the most poisonous uh, lines of reasoning, you know, where exerting power over others, not because it makes sense, but because you have the ability to, because you can. And that is, you know, any kind of breakthrough she was trying to make with this droid, it's just the door is shut here. They do it because they can, no other reason. It's just the horrible nature of slavery. Yep, there's no reasoning with that when when that is the assumption underlying the argument. Yeah. And that's it, it, it's fitting that that's just where it cuts off because there is nothing else that can be said after that. Yep. So in, in the next scene, Qui-Gon is walking back to his quarters, walking through the palace. He's thinking about freeing Rahara. He's personally resolving to take a, quote, less legal approach and seeing that he failed with Cole. And again, like we were saying, the lengths to which he's willing to go where a Jedi Knight, a Jedi Master, is willing to take some illegal measures to save one person. It's not even being, you know, illegal approaches to ending slavery in Pajal. It's just one person. Again, it's seeing this this cunning side to Qui-Gon, it just makes his character all the more uh, awesome, <laughs> lovable. It's it's I love this little thought from him. I do too. I, I love, and, and we're going to be getting into this, but I love when you can see the differences between the characters because you see Qui-Gon and, and I even made a, a list of like the, the, the lengths that he's willing to go to. He mentions that he's going to use diplomacy and if diplomacy doesn't work, yep. he's going to use money. And then when that doesn't work, it's, <laughs> he, he's going to take less legal means. And you can, you can tell just how tortured he is by this idea that like he cannot let this go. Now we're going to get into this idea of what Obi-Wan is willing to do with with the treaty and things yeah. like that and and I just I love when you can see so clearly the justifications that different characters have and the lengths that they're willing to go um and I I definitely feel like you you just really see into Qui-Gon's mind and heart in this section when you just see he is not going to be able to leave this alone. Yeah, which you know I I know that Maybe in this case, he does not want to lose Rahara to the Zerka. Slavery and fear of loss can be a, a dangerous path to fall down. He does recognize that, I think, in one of the later chapters here. But I like how you, you pointed out just that he's going through the entire playbook here to, to do everything he can, all the avenues that he is able to take in order to save one person, one person from a, a horrible fate, uh, if he can handle it, if he can manage it. Um, but he's brought back to reality when he sees that apparently the ceremony is, you know, it's back on, preparations are back underway, and he knows that something must have changed because without him, the ceremony couldn't go through. So he, he rushes back to his quarters, and that's where we know something that Obi-Wan knows, <laughs> exactly what he did. Uh, he, he, Qui-Gon tells that he can tell that he's very subdued, uh, both with how he sounds and his demeanor. And he tells Qui-Gon that the Republic named him as the representative, and he admitted that he kind of superseded Qui-Gon's authority in, in reaching out to them, uh, to the Council, for a solution. And I'd love your thoughts on kind of what Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan, uh, kind of their their engagement here, their, their conversation here, where... Qui-Gon asks Obi-Wan if he's willing to sign the treaty and literally ratify Zerka and slavery into Pijal for 
eternity. And Obi-Wan clarifies, you know, hey, the Senate said that the terms of the treaty are temporary. So after a year, Pijal has to offer a new constitution, a new treaty. And he says that the Senate, quote, has strongly indicated the changes they expect to see. Uh, so they know what's what's wrong and rotten with this treaty. But first off, that's a lot of trust placed in the Senate to make things good. And secondly, it's not even a given, where it's just what they expect to see. So there could be a way around it. What was your thought here with Obi-Wan's trust in, you know, the democratic institutions that they are loyal to? And also what Qui-Gon points out is is a valid loophole where Zerka could just go and bribe whoever they need to to make sure that those changes that the Senate, quote, expects to see never actually surface. Yeah, this really shows Obi-Wan's naivete early on and the trust that he has placed <laughs> in the Council, in the Jedi, and in the Republic. And right now we kind of see how there's, you know, there's there's so much connection between them. I mean, he is the kind of person who believes that smarter people have come before him and that following what they want him to do is good. And, and you know, we can recognize that that is an important part of his character. And, and sure. you know, I, I think that in the modern world, this idea of like, of affirming institutions can be seen as a bad thing. You know, the idea of affirming things that, you know, are just traditional or whatnot. And yet, it's good to recognize that smart, smarter people have come before us and set things up the way that they're supposed to be. And if it's been done well, then we can commit to that. And that's what yeah. Obi-Wan clearly wants to do. He wants to believe that the the institutions in place are not corrupt. Yeah. And see, that's what I love in The Clone Wars. You know, Obi-Wan's character arc in the last couple of seasons is him realizing how naive that is. And, you know, we, we see that when he's denied by the council to go and help mm -hmm. Satine and she dies, that fought yeah. that and then that's followed up immediately by the council and and all of the dealings with Ahsoka's trial. Yep. And then what wasn't on screen but is in the Dark Disciple novel is the council's dealings with Quinlan Vos. Yeah. And then all of that leads up to what I think is Obi-Wan's defining moment in the series, you know, showing where he's, um, showing the arc that he's gone through in the Siege of Mandalore when he tells Ahsoka the council isn't always right. And that's where, that but, is, but, uh... <laughs> <laughs> and not only that, but he that's does great. it, he does it in Satine's throne room, the place that he went to save her after being yeah. barred by the council to do so. Um so that's his that's that's where we see him that's before great. he goes into exile. This is the starting point yeah. where we see this is somebody who wants so desperately to believe that as long as they fulfill their mission, they fulfill what they have been sent to do, that he is going to be able to look at himself and say I have done my work as a Jedi. And it's going to take him a long time to realize that simply following orders isn't always the best way to show himself as the perfect Jedi. Uh, <laughs> that was a fantastic analysis of, of his progression. Uh, I had not thought about I had not made the connection as well to the Siege of Mandalore, where he acknowledges that, yeah, they they can mess up. Because um, here in this book, he is very, he's very sure 
of the council. You know, he he has seen at least at one point when he came to them in the first place with this that they can spend a lot of time bickering and not actually getting the job done. But then he kind of set himself straight, like, no, this is this is what they do. I trust them, uh, and I, I don't think that his intentions and you know clearly his intentions here are not bad. He wants to do good within the rules that have been set. He is a very rule governed character at this point, and I think just he and Qui Gon are at two different sides of the board where he's just not able to see what Qui Gon as you know he admit Qui Gon admitted that he is jaded at this point with you know creating change for the better in the galaxy because he knows the realities he knows the like having the senate's assurances that they'll make something good it's not necessarily a guarantee so i think obi-wan at this point yeah like you said it's just he's naive at this point you know he has this faith this unwavering faith in the institutions around him that he answers to but the galaxy is so much more complex uh, than that the chapter ends kind of on a cold ending here where, you know, he's saying that he believes in Qui-Gon rather than prophecies. He believes in his master, but he also says the future is always in motion. He also believes that. And Qui-Gon kind of on a on a chilling mic drop, uh, he says, quote, thanks to your interference, Pajal's future is written in blood. And he walks out. Uh, damn. <laughs> um, not really the kind of ending to this confrontation that we wanted to see, but we just see the gravity of what this means to Qui-Gon here. And in Obi-Wan, you know, pleading, you know, that he believes in Qui-Gon, but also he's just very bought into the dogma of the Jedi, into their mandate. And we just see this this break here where Qui-Gon's had enough and he, he just walks out. Yep. And, and again, like such a good exploration of what drives these two characters. So you, you've got Obi-Wan who believes he's going to fulfill his mandate if he just gets this treaty signed. He says, you know, the, the Republic has requested that these changes be made. It's only temporary, but it's going to get the hyperspace corridor up. It's going to get the Democratic Assembly into office. And yep. he thinks... I was totally justified in doing this because Qui-Gon and Rail were at a standoff. And then Qui-Gon kind of comes back yep. and says, "Yeah, but look what you're doing. You're you're kicking down you're kicking this treaty and you're kicking the change down the road. You think that you're doing a good thing, but now we're going to have to convince an entire assembly, an assembly that probably is going to be bought yep. by Zerka. So you think that you're doing a good thing, but you're really just ensuring that this change is never going to come." And yeah. Then not only that, but the assumptions that both of them are making about the democratic process. You know, Obi-Wan calls him out yep. and he says, quote, you've always claimed to have faith in democratic institutions. You've praised them only a few days ago. Is it so different here on Pygel? And Qui-Gon says, maybe it is. He He's seeing the corruption around him. Um, and it's it's just, you can see these two at a standoff, both believing they're entirely justified in what they're doing. Yeah. Because then you because then you add in the the added element of the prophecies, <laughs> which Qui-Gon yep. is Qui-Gon is so sure that what he has seen yep. is gonna come true, but Obi-Wan doesn't have that belief in in the prophecies, even though he believes, you know, I think that when he says, I believe in you, Master, I think he's saying he believes in his yeah. earnest intentions. He doesn't think that Qui-Gon is you know, ignorant of anything, or, you know, he thinks that he, he sees his motivations, but he also doesn't yeah. believe that this is the case. So ultimately, you just, you end with that. They're just so torn apart right now, and the tension is just so yeah. palpable. And I I find that so uncomfortable, and yet what a great chapter to showcase that. 
<laughs> That's a great way to sum it up, too. Uh, it's uncomfortable to read, but damn, is it good writing. <laughs> that's just like, that's, that's so an apt uh, summary for literally their relationship throughout this book. It's been uncomfortable at many times to read, but is it effective in portraying their characters and their motivations and their values? It, yes, Incredibly. absolutely. And I know that every, I know that every episode so far has just been a a Claudia Gray love fest. So we might as well make this one as well. Keep it consistent. No, this is not to she's... say that I won't allow anyone who who criticizes her. You know, it's no one's no one's perfect. Uh, oh no, is her writing close to that? It, you know, it's pretty damn close. But oh, certainly. And, and and I mean, there there are things in this book. There are things in her other books that that yeah. I certainly haven't agreed with her on on interpretation or the way that she's portrayed things. But in in general, I find that her overwhelming knowledge and ability to interpret this this universe is just it's just so so expansive i just i yeah. whatever she does i always want to know what her take is on something and for me especially yeah. when it comes to these characters um i feel like she's got them down i've got a, i've got a friend yeah. who vehemently disagrees and we have very <laughs> really <laughs> yes really? yes um but it, 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 we have very um, intense conversations about the interpretation of this relationship, but for me, they are exactly what I see before going into the Phantom Menace. I feel like you, yeah, we know that they had tension, but then where we get to later on, I think that it's a seamless transition. So I just it makes it I, all I worth love it. her work <laughs> exactly. It's I I do think that she has uh, portrayed their characters. Both as I would expect, and also, to be honest, I was not expecting this portrayal of uh, young Obi-Wan in this book, but I think it makes sense. Uh, ultimately, it makes sense. Uh, <laughs> that will all come to fruition, and it'll come to light uh, as probably at the, at the end of the book. I won't say anything more, but um, I can give my chapter summary for 33, and we can keep <laughs> riding this roller coaster. <laughs> Let's keep going. Aboard the Merricks, Pax feels conflicted about losing Rahara. According to his protocol droid upbringing, the logical avenue to pursue would be to hire another pilot. However, he simply cannot escape the fact that he misses her dearly. While coming to terms with his grief, Pax receives a call from Qui-Gon, who offers to help him rescue Rahara. At the palace docks, Qui-Gon prepares to go ahead with the rescue plan that night. However, Obi-Wan joins him and convinces him to wait until the next night, and also offers to help. As it turns out, his apprentice was planning on an illegal rescue mission as well. Suddenly, the Jedi are alerted by a loud commotion coming from the palace grounds. After hearing an angry crowd approaching the gates, Rail runs out to confront the group with Captain Darren. The crowd parts, revealing Halen Azuka herself, who presents her formal surrender. The twist at the end of this chapter <laughs> never gets old, uh, even though I've only read this book through once. Uh, <laughs> reading it again, uh, it, it never gets old. It's it's just a, really, this chapter and the following chapter are very brilliant uh, in, I'll say, in, in Rail's progression, eventually. Um, what, were your, uh, what were your thoughts on chapter 33? Yeah, I think that... This was not something that I was ever expecting. Again, really nice from a narratival perspective to bring in this character who, 
for a while we didn't know anything about. And then just, you know, we had Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon meet. And now she's really coming in and taking part in the story and advocating for herself and her people. And I think that I remember reading this chapter and being like, what is going to happen now? What on earth would compel Halen to turn herself over knowing what she does about the way that she's probably going to be received by rail? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll get into, you know, why she does that <laughs> later on. But again, just I, I really love that Claudia set up all of these different characters and they all weave together in different ways. And it's it's fun. The, these three chapters, especially all of these different characters yeah. seem to come together and they really start forming, you know, you can see that we're working to the climax of this story as they all start to become more and more entangled in each other's stories. Yeah, this is really the the part of the book where those different storylines and threads do come to connect in in meaningful ways. Because you're right, Hale and Azuka to this point, or at least you know until previous chapters when she actually got to interact with Qui Gon and Obi Wan, she had been a total enigma for a good third or more of the book. And now we're seeing everything kind of come to, you know, make more sense with how Claudia is writing really the, the climactic moments of this story. But the, the chapter starts out with Pax. He's in the cargo hold of the Merricks. And really the, the primary theme of this scene is the conflict between his protocol side and his human sides. They're, they're clashing really stronger than ever before in this book, where on one hand, you know, he's trying to convince himself, you know, hey... It does not make any strategical or logical sense to try and rescue her or to wait for her. You know, he knows how hopeless of a situation really she's in right now. And that, you know, according to a good protocol droid, just find another pilot. There's literally hundreds and thousands of pilots looking for a job. He could easily hire one. But on the other hand, he can't stop thinking about Rahara. And I, I love the part where he's admitting to himself in, in coming to terms with his grief that he misses her more as a person than he misses her as a pilot. And I think that is huge in, in his development, but then it also the progression of, um, of him coming to terms with his feelings for Rahara Wick. Yes, I, I really love this little relationship. I, I, I have a hard time with connecting with a lot of original characters. <clears throat> I'm always going to gravitate towards the canon characters that I'm reading for. Sure. But I just really love these two characters, and, and I really feel like it's interesting to have these two scenes between the two of them pretty close together. Yeah. But you've got Rahara, who's a human being processed into slavery again and kind of being forced into this very clinical mold. Yeah. And then you've got Pax, who grew up in a more clinical world, mm. who's recognizing that he's human. Yeah. Or at least starting to. That's a great point. I, I, I do love I love <laughs> That's that a great point. I love that Pax he tries to be rational, and then when yep. he recognizes that he's not being rational, he tries to rationalize it away. <laughs> he yeah. um I like that uh, he says when when he recognizes that he's kind of stuck on her, he's not he's not leaving, even though that would be the more proper thing to do. He says, um Quote, Pax wondered if maybe he was overlooking certain elements of the situation. His brain could be <laughs> attempting to alert him to his faulty logic. And so he tries to he tries to rationalize away his rationality, <laughs> but at the end of the day, he simply cannot deny the fact that no, there's there's something here that should not be logical, and yet he is not going to leave her behind. Yeah. 
That is great. You know, he he's tries so hard to to be the good protocol joy that he was raised for 16 years to be. He's trying so hard. And the conflict here, it's it's strong. It's it's really just a back and forth with, you know, between the protocol reasoning and the human reasoning and and we see the human reasoning edge out in the end and and I think there's a turning point here where he's thinking about the moment when the derelict ship that he was on after those 16 years had been found, when they had been rescued. And what did the protocol droids who had been with him, only him for the past 16 years do when they, you know, were rescued, they immediately left him to go serve other humans and return to their quote proper functionality, you know, without so much as a proper goodbye after all the time they'd spent together. They just walked away without another thought. And I think this might be the moment when Pax admits to himself, you know, he he says, he, he says to himself, I believe this is known as grief. And I think that admission alone is maybe him accepting his grief, accepting the human emotion instead of trying to fight it. When he's reminded of the pain that he felt when, you know, a good protocol droid as, as, you know, B-3PO and whatever the other droids names were, you know, as good as they were, they, they just left him because that was what they're programmed to do. And he knows that they might have left him, but he can't leave Rahara. And I think this might be a, a powerful turning point in him just admitting his grief. And I think that's an important step. Absolutely. And and I love that we do get that tiny little flashback of yeah. them leaving the ship. And w- before we've gotten little snippets of that life. But this is where we see that in spite of that upbringing, he was and always has been still human because the droids leave. And in the flashback, it yeah. says he felt like he wanted to cry. Well, it yeah. just it just goes to show that he might have been raised by these droids and he might have picked up a lot of their their logic and their mannerisms, but he's not a droid. And um, of course, then you mentioned the, the line where he identifies that the feelings that he's having, that, that this could be known as grief. And of course, reading back over this, this section in the last couple of days, I just had I was I just had to be uh, reminded of the line from WandaVision that everybody's been talking about uh, the last yep, couple of yeah, weeks. Yep. You know, what is <laughs> what is grief but love persevering? And yep. he's certainly not oh. recognizing that Oof. at the moment, but that's Chill. that's where my <laughs> That's where my brain went and it's like no, he's he's recognizing that he's feeling these things that should not be rational, but he's got oh, a connection okay. to Rahara that is is enduring yep. beyond the fact that she's not there anymore and he he sees her tea and he sees her her sweater on the on the seat and he yeah. recognizes that she that there's a hole in his life that was filled by her and is no longer being filled and he's identifying that as grief and what is grief if not yep. love persevering I don't know if someone is chopping onions in my room somewhere. I got tears in my eyes. This <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. Oh, that was that was really great. A really great connection. And it is true. It is true. He is coming to terms with his love for Rahara. He loves her. He loves her. Um, I just I want that to 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 come to a you know a, a neat nice bow on top of this fruition at the at the end hopefully um I do too. but it's it's an important step for him it's an important step but i love how it ends you know when he accepts qui-gon's offer to get rahara out unofficially and he thinks to himself quote even if there is only a one in two million twenty thousand four hundred and seven chance of getting rahara back he was not leaving this system without her uh and that just makes your heart all warm and fuzzy <laughs> 
I love them. <laughs> and he did the math, apparently. You know, he counted. Th- I, feel, I feel like that's an exact odd that he calculated. <laughs> that's right. Um, yeah. But in the in the next scene, Qui-Gon is kind of planning his rescue mission for Rahara. He's getting, uh, he, he's kind of under this small craft that Fannery had given he and Obi-Wan the other day. He's trying to get like a, uh, a feeling of every in and out of the ship before he uses it to fly into the leverage with the help of the Merricks. And Obi-Wan joins him. And we have the scene where Obi-Wan lets him know that, you know, to do the rescue mission tomorrow night. And he knew Qui-Gon was planning a rescue mission because he saw that Qui-Gon pulled up the schematics of the leverage when Obi-Wan had gone to do the same thing. And, you know, that they were both planning to rescue Rahara without telling each other that they were both planning to for, for this illegal <laughs> rescue you know, valuing Rahara in that way. They didn't coordinate that, but they had both had the same intention. And, you know, Qui-Gon smiles even, and and Obi-Wan begins to relax a bit when they realize that they're on the same page here. And uh, I I just love it where Qui-Gon thinks to himself, quote, it was easier to face tomorrow now that he and his apprentice had again found some common ground. And, And really, I can't overstate how important even a small moment like that is for them, especially how the last chapter ended. Absolutely. This is really where they do finally communicate. And they're not saying everything, but they're finding that common ground yeah. again. And I, I, I do love that you can see that, that even though Obi-Wan is willing to sign the treaty and these kinds of things, he still feels for Rahara, for this person who had helped them before. Yeah. He wasn't going to just leave her either. Um, but I also love that this scene is, it's Obi-Wan coming to Qui-Gon. And exactly. in... In fandom, there is still a pervasive belief that Obi-Wan is not good at communicating, and I Mm. push back on that very, very strongly. We only ever see him communicating. He's the one who, you know, in Attack of the Clones, he's the one who sees Anakin and says, you look tired. Is this because of the dreams you've been having? You know, he's the one reaching out. That's great. That's great. It's not saying that he says everything. It's not saying that Obi-Wan is an open book. He doesn't volunteer everything, but he does communicate. And we see that at at the beginning of this book, he's the first one who, when things go badly on Teth, he is the one who reaches out to Qui-Gon and says, I'm sorry for what happened. It was my fault. Yeah. And then here as well, he recognizes that tension, even though, even though kind of like you said, you know, at the end of the last chapter, Qui-Gon kind of had a mic drop that kind of puts a lot of guilt and shame (laughs) on Obi-Wan. And I think that that's probably kind of a heavy burden for him to bear, but he is still the one who comes to him and says, okay, I know that you're thinking of getting Rahara out. Here is some other good information. Don't go until the treaty is signed, and then I'll be free to help you too. And I like that he's the one yep. to, who kind of, he, he reaches out in order to try to mend that relationship in whatever way he can, even though he still knows that they're going to be separated by this ideological divide because he's still planning on signing yep. that treaty. Exactly. That, and that's an important point. At the end, you know, they are still on opposite sides of this conflict. Yeah, you know, like you had said, Obi-Wan is is willing to help him and join him after the ceremony. Because it, it also makes sense because that's when everyone will be distracted with events and parties. But he's still willing to, he's still 
going to go through with the ceremony. So it, the divide is still there, but I love how you pointed out that it was him who came to his master. You know, he, he didn't need to, but it's just the, the small things in their relationship sometimes that, you know, he might not be saying much. He might not be showing his full hand. They're still on opposite sides of this board, but it's still a, a meaningful approach to his master. And, and Qui-Gon recognizes that. They, they do lighten up to each other a bit here. They're still, again, they're still on opposite sides of this conflict, but it's something. And and really, with these two, you know, a little something goes a long way. <laughs> Definitely. Um, and the, the chapter ends really where, you know, there's this tension building where both Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan are hearing this loud noise coming from the palace grounds. And we're, we cut to Rail. He is preparing in the Celestial Chalice for the ceremony, and he hears this loud commotion. And he runs outside, and we get this really shocking moment where Halen turns herself in it's very it's a very extravagant and extra entrance from her as you would expect from a theater person you know she's wearing this vibrant green uh theater robe and she's riding in on this like hovering platform and uh but but really you know she really he can't hear what she's saying over the commotion of the crowd but he is reading on this hologram that Captain Darren had given him with a scanner, you know, I surrender. She she does have a whole, you know, not like a whole speech, but uh, there is, uh, just for, for time's sake, I don't think I can, I can read that, but she's basically coming to him, really knowing the risks of doing so, that Rail has been looking to, quote, make her pay for what she did or what he thinks that she's done, she's turning herself in and surrendering. And you really have to wonder as this chapter ends, how will Rail respond to this? This is a huge moment and a real gamble by Halen, but clearly she thinks this is the only way. This is necessary. She feels like her hand is forced and we'll have to see what happens in the next chapter. Absolutely. I think that you summed it up very well. She she really is willing to turn herself over. She clearly has something that uh, is important enough to do so and it's clear that she's she's willing to uh put herself in a very unpredictable situation in order yeah. to get to the truth of this situation yeah it's a step out of her comfort zone you know where you know, being a, th- a theater troupe they you know, this is going into unrehearsed territory uh she doesn't know the lines for what's about to happen but uh it is a risk and we have to respect that and eagerly anticipating what's going to happen so really i can read my summary for chapter 34 and we can continue with really a phenomenal next chapter in Rail's office, Halen Azuka pleads her innocence to the Lord Regent, handing over a data pad with a lead to the truth behind the Blackguards. The opposition had located a heavily armed base on Pijal, and Rail, beginning to have doubts, agrees to investigate it. Upon arriving to the coastal base, the Jedi and the Royal Guards discover a trap had been laid for them. Starting to understand such a heavily armed encampment couldn't possibly belong to the opposition, Rail orders the group to search the base against the persistent warnings from Captain Darren. Inside, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan find communication records to multiple systems, including Hut-controlled Teth. They find out someone claiming to represent Pijal's government offered to sell the Hut's shields impervious to lightsabers. Upon reflecting on this information, and on everything that had transpired, the two Jedi begin to have their doubts about Captain Darren. This chapter is a turning point in many ways for Rail Avaros and for Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan at the end as well. What were your general thoughts on, on chapter 34, a really monumental chapter in, in its own rights? 
Yeah, it's a very plot-focused chapter. You know, we, we get the, the character development at the end, and we get some character development for, for Rail. But, um, I mean, just a, a lot of things happening here. Lots of yeah. revelations, especially. And, you know, I always love when something happens <laughs> at the beginning of a story to kind of set something up. And you think, yeah. like, oh, that you know, that, that probably isn't important. It probably won't be coming back. And then it does. And yeah. so to see Thurible again and, and <laughs> that connection... And recognize that they're actually playing a part in yep. the the changing of the government on on Pyjol and what, what's going on. Again, perfect <laughs> puzzle piecing together by by Claudia Gray. Just so much going on in this in this chapter. Really, if you had told me before reading this chapter that Thurible would be showing up in chapter thirty four <laughs> at the climactic point of the book, I would have said no, no way, no way. He's the last person I would have expected to see make an appearance of some sort beyond the because he appeared back in chapter one. It has been hundreds of pages now since we've last seen him. And, you know, it's all these things are coming full circle uh, and things start to make a little more sense in this chapter. But then we're also left with uh, a bunch of more questions, as is typical from Claudia's writing in this book. You know, for every answer, we have two more questions sprout. <laughs> um, but really, the, the chapter starts in Rail's office. And, you know, Halen is sitting there cuffed, uh, sitting across from his desk, and Qui-Gon's noting that uh, Rail is, quote, pacing on the other side of the desk like a caged beast. Ironically, the revolutionary appeared more regal than the regent did. And, you know, that is saying much, but at the same time, is it really saying much? Because since, you know, Rail kind of dresses in rags (laughs) most of the time, so it's like, is the bar high there? Oh, he's a little little bit un- unpredictable. But she is yep. <laughs> she has composed herself in the you know yes. in she has pla- placed uh, the mask on herself, this theater kid, and yep. she is presenting herself <laughs> exactly the way that, that she needs to to get her message across. Oh for sure. And, and it is effective. Uh, you know, as Qui-Gon will end up seeing here, there are slivers of doubt that he will end up seeing in Rail's eyes, which is which is huge, as we'll, we'll come to see. But basically, you know, she gives them this data pad. It's only unlockable by Qui-Gon himself, and, you know, they had cheekily taken his fingerprint off of something he had touched in the uh, opposition cave a few chapters ago. But, you know, she is basically tells him about this lead on this data pad that they had tracked uh, a couple of black guards to this base, this heavily armed base, uh, which is huge, which is a huge development because until now, we had thought that they had only had activity on the moon. But here it seems that they have, a, you know, a heavily defended and armed base planet side. And although Rail is trying to put up this front that he is just, you know, not buying into what Halen is saying, Qui-Gon does begin to see that he's starting to have some doubts. And, and no one else could notice that because they don't know Rail as Qui-Gon does. But really, even the, even the smallest slivers of doubt in this situation with these uh, high stakes are, are massive. Absolutely. It's it's great to be able to just see the connection that they have together and, and to see how, you know, going forward, they, they have an understanding. They they know each other very well. And like you said, this chapter really is where we see Rail's progression. And um, it's fun to see him start to wrestle yeah. with the things that he has said previously. He is being faced with this this idea that the assumptions that he's had may not be right. Yeah. And he has to decide how he's going to proceed. And in this case, the very end of the section is, we've got nothing to lose. Let's go. And that's, you know, he really doesn't know what he's going to find. But at least it is nice that he's willing to say, we don't have anything to lose. Let's check this out. Let's let's see what we find. Yeah. And, and that is huge. You know, in a very prideful 
character in Rail Avaros that we've discovered him to be, you know, everyone has been very good about staying in their trench of what they believe, they think they're right. Everyone has been very stubborn in that way in this book. Qui-Gon, Obi-Wan, Rail, everyone. Here, it's a small concession, but he is he's willing to see what Halen is showing them, and that is a a big step in of its own in its own right. You know, he's just saying, "All right, I I'll, I'll go look." But that in in a way is him starting to see the other side of the argument. And so in the next scene, they are on their way to this coastal base, and there's really an important moment of reflection for Rail when he's on the way here. He's reflecting on how important Pijal has been for him in the past eight years of being there. And I'm just going to read this quote from the text. He's thinking to himself, quote, This was a place that understood how a rough exterior could conceal a worthy interior. A place where his raw feelings about Nim's death could serve a worthwhile purpose. His place. Avaros trusted himself on Pijal, and he'd never thought he would trust himself again after the Advent Mutiny. And really, we're seeing how much he needed this second chance, this second life, really. And he's really confronted with the notion that even everything he's tried to do here on Pijal to protect Fanry, he might have been wrong the whole time about the opposition. It's really him knowing and recognizing how important Pijal has been, but then also admitting that despite how strongly he feels about this place, he might have gotten everything wrong. Uh, It's really a humbling thought from Rail, and also, you know, an important thought where he's realizing just how much he needed this chance and he needs to get it right. Yeah, I I think that that's that's really the the paragraph that stood out to me as well, this this importance that he has placed on Pijal as his second chance, the the fact that he can still be worthy even after everything that happened. And what's hard for him now is this idea that he could have been wrong. Does that mean that he's unworthy in this situation as well? He thought he was unworthy in the situation with Nim, but he, he fixed it. He believes that he's dealt properly with Fanry and and the situation what does it mean if he's wrong yeah and and really we'll we'll have to find out if he has the the strength of his character you know if he is wrong uh, and we come to see in this chapter he believes Qui-Gon about the opposition and how he was wrong about the opposition and we'll see really the implications of that because they do show up to this base he he starts to realize there is no way the opposition could be behind this with this, you know, they have droidicas and anti-air blasters and ground craft and laser cannons. It is, this base is armed to the teeth and he's, he's thinking to himself, a theater troupe, there's, there's no way. And so really it's these, this progression of concessions to what Qui-Gon had been trying to tell him, which is, which is massive for real. Uh, and really how entrenched he had been in his own beliefs of the situation up until then. Uh, and so when they arrive to this base, Captain Darren warns them, you know, that they're uh, these invisible uh, stealth shield generators, and it turns into this trap where when, you know one of their droid droids runs into the shield and it explodes. And you know, I, I thought about uh, Admiral Akbar just like it's a trap. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's such a such a small moment. I just I just had to throw that in there. Um. <laughs> I think that's that's just the natural inclination whenever yeah. anybody talks about traps in Star Wars or outside of Star Wars yeah. too. <laughs> or outside, exactly. Um, we are people who have been conditioned, haven't we? <laughs> yes. Oh, I'm okay with it, you know. <laughs> May the force uh, be with you. This is the way. We'll, yep, we'll... I have spoken all that. <laughs> but, you know, it is a 
turning point for real here where, you know, although Darren is saying anyone could be funding the opposition, you know, they might have led us into this trap. He's thinking to himself, you know, that the truth had finally become clear to him and that he can't avoid it. Even admitting to Qui-Gon, you know, okay, if this was a trap, then who said it? Even admitting that it wasn't the opposition who set the trap, it's as close that we'll get to him admitting that he's wrong. Uh, And again, it's, it's one line. It is one concession. But given how tense things have been between him and Qui-Gon. Again, like in the last chapter where the small moments between Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan amount to a lot, it's the small concessions that show that there might still be hope for Rail and Qui-Gon to make amends and to be once again on on the same side. Absolutely. Well said. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so inside the base, you know, Captain Darren is is telling them, you know, hey, you can't go in there, you shouldn't go in there, but they go in anyway to to investigate to see what they can find. And we get this moment where Obi-Wan finds this deactivated astromech droid and they find these communication records they call Thurible. <laughs> again, I was not expecting to see this man show up again. But basically, he tells them that there was someone posing as the, quote, legitimate government of Pijal trying to do business with them to, to buy these shields. And after Qui-Gon, you know, ends the call saying, you know, hey, you got scammed, that's, you know, the government isn't doing that, uh, you know, he and Obi-Wan have this revelation where if Thurible was telling the truth, if this was someone as part of the legitimate government of Pijal, you know, what if it was? And he thinks to himself, quote, it had to be someone close to the princess, someone who'd had access to the innermost areas of the palace, someone who could breach the security defenses because he already knew what they were or the person who'd put them into place to begin with. Someone like Captain Darren. What were your thoughts at, at this bombshell of a thought here? Uh, it, I, I had thought, you know, in previous episodes, you know, what if the devotion to Fanry is a ruse? You know, it's sometimes the most loyal people you have to worry about the most. And here, Qui-Gon is thinking, oh my god, holy shit, what if it's Captain Darren, who who knows the ins and outs of everything? What were your thoughts at this? Yeah, I, I just I just live for reveals like this where, you know, this this may not be billed as a mystery novel, but yeah. but it is. I mean, <laughs> yeah, we yeah. go through the gambit of yeah. who are our suspects, who could who could be behind this, and now they've settled on Captain Darren and, and like you said, it's it's always you know, you know, could this be a ruse? You know, it's always the one that you necessarily yeah. don't expect. And um I don't know, I, I, I always really liked Captain Darren. I liked the fact that this is a man who, you know, he's a protector and he he just he recognizes his purpose in life. And I I really liked earlier chapters where it just he just seemed so devoted to that vocation. So now it's like, yeah. you know, what's going on? You know, what could he be hiding? Exactly. <laughs> and uh that's I I remember going, "Oh, no, not Darren." <laughs> I know it's like you know he he's been really devoid of emotion um you know very just very stoic in protecting Fanry and he does his job well he's trying and you really hate it when the people you trust the most sometimes are the most maybe the most untrustworthy uh there might be a line from Pirates of the Caribbean Jack Sparrow is like maybe along the same lines he says like sometimes it's the most trustworthy who 
I don't know. But he says something like that. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but really, it's a, a, a kind of a shocking thought. Um, and here I am being very smug and like, yeah, no, I had this thought this thought first. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, he and Obi-Wan are kind of putting the pieces together. You know, Obi-Wan had said, yeah, he tried to over the top warn us not to go into this base to investigate. You know, is he trying to protect the information in there? And he also says after all the Blackguard attacks, you know, they had attacked Zerka and the opposition, but they had never attacked the Royal Guards. They're starting to suspect Captain Darren. Uh, they don't have proof. This is just suspicion and hunches and pieces are lining up in a certain way, but they're resolving to keep an eye on him. But really, you know, as big as a moment as that is, I think we get an even bigger moment between Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan to end this chapter. They have a great moment, you know, where, where Qui-Gon very humbly tells Obi-Wan that, you know, he has been angry at him for going behind his back to the council, but that's exactly, you know, he can't be mad at Obi-Wan because that's what he's been teaching him to do, to, to be independent, to act on his instincts. And then we get this revelation here where Obi-Wan says that as a youngling, that had never been a problem. You know, he he had been rebellious. He had been breaking rules that, you know, he he had been independent. And, you know, bef before I get into really my, my ultimate thought here, I do want more stories of youngling Obi. You know, we, we've gotten more young gone in this book, but I want, now I want young Wan. Like, I just, there's so much there. <laughs> there's so much there. And it's, and, um, you know, I have not read them. I actually just started reading, but we we did have, you know, in the EU, we had the Jedi Apprentice books. And yeah, yeah, yeah. What's what's fun is that you can tell that there's there's some stuff being brought in. I mean, obviously this all stems all of it stems from the couple of offhanded comments made by Obi-Wan to Yoda in the original trilogy where yeah. um that that mentioned that when he was younger he was angry. And I feel like Yeah, yeah, wow. That's, you know, that that was where, you know, we never would have gotten these stories or, you know, they, they never would have been prompted if that hadn't been the case for with, with everybody going, Obi-Wan, old Ben, yeah. you, you're saying that old Ben had anger problems, that he was rebellious. What what's yeah. going on here? So, you know, they they did um, come out with that whole series um, earlier, which was then kind of retconned. And yeah. but I do like that you can still see some of that inspiration and that Claudia is bringing it back in um, and talking about how, you know, this was somebody who really st struggled with, with anger and, you know, in, in this case, talking about being rebellious. There, there are more stories there that I, I, I would just really like to yeah. get Claudia's view on what had happened, but it's really interesting yeah. the connection that they make in this section. I, I, I do want to first say I love how you connected, um, I think that was Empire Strikes Back when he was talking with Yoda, yeah. But you, you're right, that we do get this great moment between them. Uh, I'm just going to read it from the text because uh, I, I just love it, uh, where after Qui after Obi-Wan tells him, you know, yeah, I, I was independent as a youngling, uh, Qui-Gon begins to laugh. And he says, quote, Don't you see, Obi-Wan? They knew you'd rebel against any master you worked with, so they made sure you wound up with a Jedi who almost never followed the rules. The only way for you to rebel was to become the perfect Jedi. And, you know, although Obi-Wan, you know, obviously, he, he does have his flaws, you know, he never really became the, the perfect Jedi. 
everything makes sense here. You know, where, where Obi-Wan had struggled so much, and they both had struggled in this book so much, thinking we're so different. How how are we supposed to work well together? You know, this we're just so on opposite ends of, you know, personalities and beliefs and all that. And, and this has really been, I think, more prominent with Obi-Wan. And Obi-Wan struggling with feeling like he was failing Qui-Gon so many times because they were so different. And here, it all kind of comes together and makes sense where they see the intention behind it. They see the value behind their pairing. And I don't know, it just makes you smile. I really like this section. Um, the friend that I mentioned earlier, she's got a problem with this. This was another one of our very mm. <laughs> intense conversations just about, you know, what what does it mean when you know, you introduce this idea that Obi-Wan only is the way that he is mm. because he felt the need to act in opposition. You know, it's... Interesting, interesting. It, and it, it raises some interesting questions, but I do like this connection because I think that it is true to the way many people are in the real world. There are a lot of mm. people who their personality kind of changes just in little ways just kind of in nuanced ways when they're with different people and i yeah i think that that's even more true when you're young when your personality as you're growing is still kind of being solidified so i i do like this idea i like this yeah. idea that they saw this kid who was rebellious and yet also, you know, had so much talent, had so much of a longing to be a good Jedi. Yeah. And they thought the way that we can try to moderate this and help him grow is to give him an unorthodox teacher. Yeah. A, a teacher that hopefully Obi-Wan, and, and ironically Obi-Wan, becomes a little bit more conservative then, you know, the, the one who's yeah. kind of calling out his master. And I just, like, I, I don't know, I, I, I'm not sure where I fall if I really like sure. the implications of that, but I do think that it has a lot of merit to the early stages of their relationship. Yeah, that is a, an interesting point. And I guess I'll have to think more on that um, off air. <laughs> I don't want this to go on forever. Um, but I, I can see, you know, kind of, I think maybe it speaks to the way that Claudia writes her characters and understands people in the Star Wars universe, where I don't think that it was Obi-Wan's personality being manipulated in a way that he doesn't own who he, who he ended up becoming. I think it was more, it shows the mutual growth and change that, that happens naturally when two different personalities clash. And I, I think there can be merit in that, uh, how it just naturally grows into, you know, different ways. Maybe it was exactly the intention of the order, but I, I don't think that Obi-Wan owns any less of his personality with how he how we know him moving forward where it just might be what naturally happens when, you know, you're in this close relationship with, with another who views the world so different from uh, from you. I don't know. I, I have to think on that. I have to chew on that. <laughs> There's a little bit of tension there. It, yes. Just a little bit of tension. I, yeah. I really I really like the connection. And like yeah. I said, I feel like there's, you know, when you're young, there's kind of a, a, a plastic nature to your your yeah. personality. And, and I don't I don't think that there's anything wrong with showing how a person when they're young, that yeah. that their personality is fundamentally different. I mean, we we've all had we've all gone through that. <laughs> you know, so many people have a, a quote unquote rebellious stage yeah. and and if you have a stage well that implies that you have exited the stage yeah. 
there's always going to be a reason, whether you recognize it or not, why that stage ended. And for Obi-Wan, it just happens to be that he was placed in this relationship with Qui-Gon, which, for all of its frustrations, has been a, a relationship that has cultivated a lot of growth in him as well. Yeah. For sure. Uh, I, I couldn't say it better than that. Um, I, I do think it is a very powerful, you know, th in these three chapters alone, they have been through so much uh, <laughs> between each other. And I do like this moment, um, you know, even if it just means that they get to see each other in a different and, and more positive and meaningful way. Um, this was really a big chapter for them at the end. It was a massive chapter for Rail, you know, again, it wasn't necessarily focused on, on him so much, you know, all he really did was discover this base and investigate it, but I feel like his character still came a long way in becoming on more level ground with Qui-Gon. As we close up today with, with this chapter, with how meaningful it was for Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan and for Rail as well, do you have any closing thoughts before we wrap up? Yeah, no, like you said, this has been such a journey just in these last three chapters, and, um, as somebody who really loves this book for the character-driven moments, I'm yeah. glad that I got to <laughs> a lot. to talk on these moments because there is there's so much going on between them, and um, so much that is setting up the end of this story. So yeah, so much good stuff. You gotta love it. Thank you, Claudia. Um, but as we close up today's episode, Jess, if the listeners wanted to, you know, if they if they liked what they heard on this episode and your insights and your discussion and you know just hearing your thoughts, if they wanted to find you online and and check out your work, where could they do so? Yeah, well, the easiest place that you can find me is on Twitter at darksaberlight, and um, there, you know, I'm I'm always posting updates about my podcast. Um, stories by Dark Saber Light, where you know we're very much. We started out as um, a podcast that was reflecting on the new episodes of The Mandalorian as those came out, but now we're getting into lots of new content, and we're really excited to be bringing that to people. Um, we're going to be starting a series surrounding um, mythology and Star Wars, and so nice. con connecting back to um, Joseph Campbell and Hero with a Thousand mm. Faces, and. So we'd, we'd love if people would join us on that journey. And um, I think that that's probably the best place that you can find us. You can find the podcast wherever um, podcasts can be found. We're on, on Anchor, we're on Spotify, we're on Apple Podcast, uh, wherever works best for you. Listeners, I will post links to Jess's work in the episode description. Go check out her show. It seems like it's going to take an exciting, new, interesting turn. Uh, a new chapter is being opened as we close this chapter today. But Jess, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to Master and Apprentice. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Andrew. It's been a real, real pleasure to be able to do so. And before we close up today, I'll give our discussion question for these chapters. Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan came to an important understanding, finally realizing why the Council had chosen to pair them together as master and apprentice. Looking back on the story we've discussed so far, at their highs and their lows, how would you describe what this moment meant for the two Jedi? And listeners, I will post the question to Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Please send us a response on any of those platforms, or you can reach out to us by email at OuterRimReadsPod at gmail.com. And thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to follow Outer Rim Reads on social media to stay up to date on the show and our discussion questions, feel free to give us a follow on Twitter at Outer Rim Read Pod and on Facebook and Instagram at Outer Rim Reads Pod. 
If you'd like to support the show, you can do so if you head over to patreon.com slash outerrimreads. And if you want some merch, you can find us at teespring.com slash stores slash outerrimreads. Outer Rim Reads is created by Andrew Gayhud, is hosted by Andrew Gayhud, is edited by Connor Floyd, and it is produced by Andrew Geha as well as Simon Van Bakum. We'll be back in two weeks with episode 35. So until then, sit back and enjoy. Rail might not have been happy, but you've got to admit, Halen Azuka's got style.